Hi, I'm Michelle Young. And I'm Sam Tracy. And you're listening to Season 2 of This Week in Drugs, the leading podcast on all things drugs and drug policy, including news, science, health, and history. This show is an all-volunteer project by students and alumni of Students for Sensible Drug Policy, an awesome organization working to end the war on drugs. Every week on This Week in Drugs, we hope to educate the public and decision makers about drugs in order to eliminate harmful misconceptions and improve public policy. And hopefully have some fun while we're at it. We neither condemn nor condone drug use. Rather, we envision a world in which our attitudes and laws surrounding drugs are grounded in science, compassion, health, and human rights. As usual, we'll start things off with a discussion of the biggest drug news from the last week, a couple of quick hits, and then a forecast for the weeks ahead. Then, it's time for the first installment of May's Drug of the Month, where Sam will give you an introduction to benzodiazepines. Then, we'll be looping in our very own Tyler Williams and Sarah Merrigan to talk about their experience as youth advocates at UNGAS. And of course, we'll wrap it all up with our calls to action, because while learning about drugs is a lot of fun, none of it matters if we're not using that knowledge to make the world a better place. So thanks for joining us for episode 43 of This Week in Drugs. And now it's time for the weekly news and forecast, where we talk about some of the most exciting stuff that happened in drugs last week and tell you about some exciting stuff that's happening in the weeks ahead. So, Rochelle, do you want to start us off with our first story? Sure. In our first story this week, which is kind of relevant to... um, you know, young people having a voice in policy. In Britain, a 22-year-old, Ben Toomey, is running to be the police and crime commissioner for Warwickshire, which is a county in Britain, and will be Britain's youngest candidate running for that position. But many observers are already saying that he may be one of the best qualified candidates in the country. Um, Mm. Best of all, uh, Toomey is bringing a harm reduction-based approach to policing and wants to stop prosecuting drug users in his jurisdiction altogether. Um, wow. Toomey is actually the protege of current Durham Commissioner Ron Hogg, who came under extreme criticism last summer when, when the media found out that he had actually told a local cannabis club not to worry about being arrested for pre- producing or consuming cannabis, like basically sanctioning mm-hmm. their mm-hmm. illicit activity. So according to this article that I read, um, Hogg was soon vindicated when the Durham Constabulary was rated the country's top police force. Um which they don't really provide a citation for who rated the police, mm-hmm. the top police force. I mean, it could be, you know, the poli- the people that they are not no longer arresting, you know, rated them very <laughs> highly. I could see that as being, mm-hmm. you know, a reason you might really like your local police. Um, but at the time when uh, Hogg came under fire for, um, you know, not enforcing against that cannabis club, Toomey, the 22-year-old, was actually the head of the drugs and alcohol policy for hog and help develop the plan to make this a lower law enforcement priority um so while he was in university Toomey did study drug policy and the position with uh, commissioner hog was his first job out of college basically wow this is awesome i mean my first thought here is that we need to get this guy involved with ssdp i know i'm surprised he hasn't been already considering Mm -hmm. you know that his specific major in the uk yeah Mm -hmm. and there is a presence there but yeah i mean this is incredibly exciting and at first i thought okay 22 year old running as a super progressive about or for some elected office like oh this would be cool to talk about and he but he's just like you know, more of a protest candidate than anything, but it sounds like he's actually a really serious Extremely qualified. since he's Yeah, gone. I mean, yeah. even in Warwick, so after he finished working for Hogg for four months during that, um, you know, the, the period of extreme criticism with the mm-hmm. cannabis clubs, he went on to, mo- to work for the Warwickshire Police, which is the position he's running to be in charge of now, and he was mm-hmm. the lead of their organized crime and youth protection units. So he's had a lot mm-hmm. of experience already, even as young as he is, in law enforcement. Um, mm-hmm. So it's not like he comes at this with no background. And it seems like after um, he passed, or after they implemented this plan to make prosecution of low-level drug offenses, you know, the lo- lowest law enforcement priority, five other mm-hmm. counties actually adopted the similar model. So it's not completely out of oh, wow. left field. Mm-hmm. And that is really cool, too, that he does have experience in things beyond drug policy, because that's always the, the fear of, uh, you know, a drug policy specialist running for 
some broader elected office of being too much of like a single issue candidate but that's cool that he's doing all sorts of uh, other stuff with that office too um yeah and i think this gives us a good perspective that you know like coming from a criminal defense background a lot of us are very hesitant to do any work with prosecutors at all because they're the bad guys mm-hmm. who are trying to put our people in jail um mm-hmm. but this really shows a perspective where if you are in the position to be prosecuting or charging or arresting people you can make really pro-criminal justice decisions in how mm-hmm. you prioritize who you're going after yeah so um definitely going to keep an eye out on this election and see whether Mm -hmm. Toomey is one of our police commissioners in the UK next year. Absolutely. And yeah, just one last thing and then the next story. But just I remember someone talking at one point of having conversations with people saying like SSDPers don't need to be like, you know, defenders like we need SSDPers to like sign up to be cops. And mm-hmm. it's like that that's the ideal situation, which you have like a funnel into law enforcement against prohibition, basically, because they're the ones in power. But that would be uh, really cool. And yeah, as you said, totally want to keep tabs on this, because if he actually wins, maybe we could uh, have him on the show. Absolutely. And so for our next story here is uh, this one actually comes through Tumblr, uh, where a national pharmacy chain Walgreens published a blog post about medical marijuana. And so the post ran through the basics of cannabis, explaining what it is, how it works. Uh, you know, some of the common uses and side effects and how to get access to it in states where it's legal. And while it was completely, you know, just honest and balanced, uh, the content of the post itself wasn't really anything groundbreaking. It was pretty much just what you'd find on Wikipedia or on a cannabis dispensary's FAQ page or something. Uh, but the newsworthy, the newsworthy thing here is that the messenger uh, is this major pharmacy chain, Walgreens. Mm-hmm. And so it's the first time any major pharmacy like this has publicly said anything supportive of medical marijuana. And so this is just kind of there's a few other things to talk about, but it is just one milestone in this and that there's these major healthcare providers that are actually recognizing the legitimacy of marijuana as medicine. Yeah, this is totally groundbreaking and surprising to see such a mainstream company take on Mm -hmm. this issue, but it just goes to show how mainstream this is becoming. I think the one area of concern for for people observing this may be that, Mm -hmm. you know, this is a play by pharmaceutical companies to take over more control of the medical medical cannabis industry, which obviously... Mm -hmm we've known that the industry is moving in that direction already. Um, I also think that Walgreens may be taking this step because um, I believe a, a member of the Walgreens family actually sits on the board of directors for one of the five New York licensees. I've um, heard that. Mm-hmm. Right. So this may be you know, a way for them to um, either soften the blow of when people find out that they're mm-hmm. on the board of a medical cannabis company or kind of to start mainstreaming. Mm-hmm. I mean, not soften the mm-hmm. blow, but like making so like that connection. Criticisms exactly. Like we've always been for this. It wasn't like a backroom kind of thing. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And, and yeah, just what's so impressive to me here is also just that Walgreens, I mean, maybe in terms of the long term play, like you were saying, of the pharmaceuticalization of marijuana with stuff like uh Epizyalex and these other uh, prescriptions being made. But at least as of right now, under the current legal climate, Walgreens actually doesn't have anything to gain uh, from this announcement other than helping their customers. And, and they actually have a little bit to lose because, I mean, they say in this blog post of, you know, pharmacies under any state law are not allowed to sell marijuana, even in states where it's legal, and that you have to go through this other process and get a card and get it from a dispensary. And they have like a link to some websites in which you can like learn more about those laws. And since so basically they're telling their customers about this alternative to their own products that they're not allowed to sell. Yet. Um, and so, yet, yes, that's true. <laughs> and so like, yeah, if any of their customers who are on an opiate regimen switch to medical marijuana, Walgreens is both losing that business and then also losing the business that, you know, the kind of ancillary stuff that comes along with that. So it kind of reminded me of just, you know, C- CVS's, uh, a couple years ago, their big announcement of that they weren't s- selling tobacco products anymore. Mm, um, mm-hmm. So kind of trying to take the step like of a positioning pro themselves. Exactly. Yeah. So like trying to be, we're a healthcare <laughs> Instead company. Instead of pro, pro, pro profit, health, mm-hmm. people over profits. 
Yeah. And so like trying to get that kind of reputation. And so it's actually, it's a really helpful thing here. But as you are alluding to also that maybe in the long run, they're going to be pushing for like, hey, we should just sell this in pharmacies. We've been, we've been recognizing its medical value since 2016. And now we're talking about uh, where to put it. Or if they actually have a piece of a business, you know, it's, they may not really be losing business if they're just pushing it towards something Mm -hmm. else that they are making profits off of. But definitely overall, it's great to see you know a major company like that come out with Mm -hmm. like you said pretty neutral information balanced Mm -hmm. information about uh medical marijuana yeah so moving on to the opposite coast although i guess we weren't really talking specifically about new york so moving on to Mm -hmm. california specifically Mm -hmm. um the campaign in support of the adult use of marijuana act in california announced this week that it had collected six hundred thousand signatures which is nearly twice as many as is needed to qualify for the ballot so not all the signatures have been validated yet but we're counting this as a victory since there are so many we have such a large margin of error Mm -hmm. Um, The two major funders of that campaign, just as a reminder, are Sean Parker of Napster and Facebook fame, as well as the Drug Policy Action, which is the advocacy and political arm of DPA. So for those unfamiliar with California medical marijuana generally, uh, medical marijuana was first legalized um, in California in 1996. It was the first state to do so. But for the past two decades, um, it's been largely unregulated with mostly caregivers and patients forming collectives or cooperatives uh, to you know, grow and share cannabis uh, Mm -hmm. in an ostensibly nonprofit model. Um, Just this past year, the Medical Marijuana Regulation and Safety Act was passed to create a statewide regulatory system. Um, So this is the first time in two decades where there's like a statewide consensus over what like licensing and regulation should be in place. Um, So I think a lot of that was really taken into account when drafting this piece of legislation. It's like a lot longer than I think other ballot initiatives have been and includes uh, some nuances that Mm -hmm. I that I don't think we've really seen in other states. And I think it's because of this long history of a quasi informal medical cannabis uh, industry that's existed. Mm hmm. And I do know that in the the lead up to this initiative, too, and that there was so much attempts at trying to get everyone on board with it. Mm -hmm. And I mean, Sean Parker brought the money, but then wanted to make sure that there weren't two initiatives on the ballot Mm because that would have gotten so confusing. And so like trying to get groups, I think the NAACP had endorsed it already or Mm -hmm. or played a large hand in actually crafting it. And so it is... um, yeah, a lot more in depth. I mean, and at least as far as California goes, I, I haven't read through this whole initiative, but California is just like loves regulation so much. Uh-huh. And in terms of like the nitty gritty details, I mean, even on their medical marijuana regulations, there's like 17 license types or something when most yeah, states but have I actually three. Think, yeah, mm-hmm. um, I actually think it's it's like having more license types is maybe a good move because um, mm-hmm. then it gives you know, regulators the opportunity to look at very large scale uh, cultivators and regulate those more strictly than if you're looking at mom and pop shops and, um, you know, more like boutique growers. And Mm -hmm. um, the AUMA, the Adult Use of Marijuana Act, actually does create a micro business license so that someone can do all three stages without having to invest like an intense amount of capital um, in order to compete with. um, So I actually, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so there are 17 license types, but um, it's so that I think it will be easier to not over-regulate some people who don't need as much regulation. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it might be better. For example, they create two types of manufacturing licenses, one for volatile solvents and one for non-volatile solvents, um, oh, which most other states really don't good. distinguish between. Mm-hmm. So then everybody gets wrapped up in having to do all this testing and stuff, even if they're not yeah. using like very dangerous um, mm-hmm. extraction methods. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And I mean, that is also... I mean, in a similar way to the the micro business license of like having fewer barriers to entry for getting mm-hmm. involved, uh, but also yeah, if you're just doing like cold water extraction, you don't need to be jumping through the same hoops as doing like butane. And right, right. Really, for everyone really to wear the actually. same safety gear or have the same mm-hmm. security measures in place, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like you said, the NAACP was involved or like had uh, a voice at the table when this was drafted. So, I think. Um, there are also provisions that make it easier for people with past felony convictions potentially to even be an owner in the business, which, you know, a lot of people with felony convictions um, 
haven't even been able to participate in the industry at all in certain states. So Mm -hmm. this does give licensing authorities the ability to evaluate whether someone's past felony conviction, if it was completely served already, like if they served at the terms of their sentence, Mm -hmm. um, you know, whether they would otherwise qualify to be be a licensee Mm -hmm. and not automatically block them out. And yeah, so I mean, we we started this off with three positive news stories, and unfortunately, I'm going to wrap it up with a negative one, or one that I have a lot of mixed feelings about. But this is that on on Tuesday, investigators working with the Massachusetts Attorney General's office published a report that a chemist at a state drug lab had been stealing and consuming drugs while on the job for many, many years. Oh no! And so, the according to the Boston Globe, the chemist whose name is Sonia Farak had tested drug samples or testified in court between 2005 and 2013, uh, so an eight-year period while under the influence of meth, ketamine, cocaine, LSD, and other drugs. Uh, Farak even testified to a grand jury that she had smoked crack before a 2012 interview with state police officials who were inspecting the lab for accreditation purposes. And this investigation was conducted last year, but was actually sparked by her uh, arrest in 2013 after a co-worker reported missing drugs in the lab. So after that, she pled guilty to four counts of tampering with evidence, stealing cocaine from the lab, and unlawful possession of cocaine, and was sentenced to 18 months behind bars. But then the state Supreme Judicial Court ruled last year, so after she had gotten out, uh, that the state had not investigated the case thoroughly enough, so this investigation was then launched, which led to this new report. Um, So this is just a really shocking story that a lot of people in Massachusetts are talking about um, just because there's, you know, so many elements of it of corruption and just all of the the drug involvement and just like the crazy surprise of it. And it's especially relevant because, I mean, a lot of our listeners have probably heard this story, too, because it was national news. Um, There was this other uh, I don't know if she was a chemist, but she was um, some kind of staff member uh, in Massachusetts at a different uh, state drug lab. Uh, her name was Annie Dukin, um, and she was the one who was arrested in 2012 for fabricating results in thousands of tests. And so that was a huge firestorm because that was potentially led to tons of wrongful convictions because she was just making up these results instead of doing the work. Um, so this is connected to that because it's, you know, corruption at a state drug lab, a bit different because it was just that basically she was testing the drugs, but then sneakily consuming a bunch of them while on the job like consistently and she claimed she was doing it like every day um Mm -hmm. so it's a different kind of situation but just reminds people of that too yeah i feel like the more interesting for me focus here is not Mm -hmm. the not the rampant corruption but really the fact that from a from a perspective of drug use versus abuse that Mm -hmm. nobody was able to detect that she was using like a variety of drugs daily on the job uh, for years and then Mm -hmm. it took a report of you know, drugs missing in order mm-hmm. to investigate this. It's, it's not like she was uh, deficient at her job or yeah. um, otherwise doing it um, poorly while intoxicated. So clearly she mm-hmm. is at least some level of high functioning drug user. Um, yeah. But it is, you know, awful that we don't, I mean, we, I mean, I, I imagine that the results are correct. We don't know, right? Like mm-hmm. the report doesn't say whether the influence of the drugs fucked up her or messed up her results. Yeah. Um, And I mean, that's the thing that I'm so torn about, too, of like how I feel about this story, because there's a lot of people, I mean, the ACLU and even, you know, a bunch of commentators were saying, oh, now this calls into question all of these mm -hmm. tests that she did. Um, Obviously, it's good to have drug convictions thrown out, especially, you know, if it's just simple possession and that we would prefer for a lot of these tests to get thrown out if it gets people out of prison. But on the other hand, right. like you said, because the process this, is tainted now, it's yeah. unreliable because so of it's her like drug a good use. Ex- but, yeah, but right. then, like as you said, it sounds like if, if no one had detected this behavior, it sounds like she was just a high functioning drug user, and maybe it right. didn't affect her work. And right, people are like afraid to say that, and it's also you know, kind of <laughs> counter to what the result that we want. But it might well just be that she was just taking some drugs and then doing her completely honest tests. I don't know. Um, right. One last thought is I'm very confused how the the Supreme Judicial Court could say that the investigation had not been or the case had not been investigated thoroughly enough and that they have to do it again. Like that seems like a violation of double Mm -hmm. jeopardy because she's already served her sentence. Yeah. Um, But is there like a potential for criminal charges to result again if they do further investigation? So I don't know all the legal details here uh, because I just Mm -hmm. read a few articles about it and not like all the the actual court documents or anything. But my understanding right now is just that they wanted more of an investigation, but that it's not like 
getting ready for more criminal charges. Okay, it just to it's see, maybe just, just to, to see whether results. Yeah. Yeah, and also kind of just more so what they understand about. like someone in our state agency was like royally screwing up their job and like blatantly corrupt. Um, so we should like understand what happened there. Um, so okay. to the best of my knowledge, they're not trying to throw her back in prison. Um, but okay. I'll definitely keep our listeners updated if anything like that does come down the pike. And now moving on to our quick hits headlines. Uh, This first piece is from just hours ago on Thursday when we are recording this news. Um, The FDA has adopted a new rule regulating electronic cigarettes or e-cigs, essentially treating them the same as tobacco and requiring that all products that were not on the market before February 15, 2007 must now get new approval from the Food and Drug Administration which many have said will hamstring the vaping industry, which barely existed in 2007. Next, over two-thirds of the Maine legislature voted to override Governor LePage's vetoes of two overdose prevention bills, one that provides funding for needle exchanges and another that increases access to naloxone. So thanks, Maine legislature. An American Academy of Pediatrics study on Washington State found no change in the proportion of adolescents who find it, quote, easy to access marijuana after its regular... Recreational use was legalized for adults in 2012, which should help quell the fears of those scared of legalizations because it might increase youth use. So it doesn't. In prominent Oakland, California dispensary, Harborside Health Center scored a massive legal victory this week when the Department of Justice agreed to drop a civil forfeiture case they'd been pushing since 2012 in an attempt to close Harborside. A loss would also have put other dispensaries at risk by setting a precedent, so this victory is also a win for the entire industry. And finally, in a major loss for reformers, the Vermont House voted down both the Senate's marijuana legalization bill as well as refused to put the question to a statewide vote or even expand the state's existing decriminalization law. Now moving on to our weekly forecasts. Um, On May 17th, uh, if you're in the Denver Boulder community, the cannabis business startup incubator Canopy Boulder will be holding a demo day at the Boulder Theater in Boulder, Colorado, um, allowing their spring 2016 class to present their services and products developed after a 13-week business accelerator program. So the event is free, but uh, but you do need tickets ahead of time. Also, if you're an SSDP student, there are opportunities to volunteer for the event, um, and the event is a partnership uh, slash fundraiser for SSDP. So super encourage you to go or volunteer um, if you're a student. And this coming Thursday, which is May 12th, the Massachusetts Public Health Association is hosting a forum called Marijuana Legalization, Long Overdue Criminal Justice Reform or Threat to Public Health. The event will be featuring experts from both sides of the debate, including Jim Borgasani from the Campaign to Regulate Marijuana Like Alcohol and State Senator Jason Lewis, who is opposing the campaign. So if you're in the Boston area, it would be great if you could come to make it out and show your support for the long overdue criminal justice reform side. And that's all for this week's weekly news and forecast. As always, we have our eye out for the biggest drug and drug policy news stories from the past week. Um, But there's so much going on all the time that we might not catch it all. So um, if you do see some news that you'd like us to feature on our show, please give us uh, a shout out on Facebook or Twitter or email us at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com. Now it's time for our Drug of the Month, where we bring you an intro, science, history, and recent trends in a different drug each month. We skipped last week since there's five Sundays in May, but that means this week is the first installment of May's drug, which is actually more a category of drugs. Benzodiazepines, also known as benzos for short, and including certain well-known brands such as Xanax and Valium. As I said, benzodiazepine is not an individual drug, but rather a class of drugs, and what they have in common is the core chemical structure which includes a benzene ring and a diazepine ring, making benzodiazepines. Benzos are classified as depressants and are most often prescribed for things like anxiety and multiple different sleep disorders. If you're like me and don't have a degree in chemistry, you're probably wondering what exactly is a benzene ring or a diazepine ring. As it sounds, these are groups of atoms connected to one another in a ring shape, which can then be connected to other rings or groups of atoms in order to form very complex molecules. Benzene is a specific compound with a formula C6H6, 
with the molecule being composed of six carbon atoms in a ring together, with one hydrogen atom at attached to each of those carbons, looking kind of like spokes on a wheel when you're using the ball and stick model of visualizing atoms. Diazepine is a little more complicated because it actually has a few different configurations, but all of those are made up of five carbons, two nitrogens, and six hydrogens, arranged in different ways, but always with the carbons and nitrogens in a ring and the hydrogens acting as kind of like the spokes coming off of them. So to sum that up, benzodiazepines have no set chemical structure because there's so many of them, but to look at two examples, Valium, which is a brand name for the compound diazepam, has the chemical formula C16H13CIN2O, while Xanax, the brand name of alprazolam, has the formula C17H13CIN4. So as you can see, benzos always have a carbon, hydrogen, and nitrogen by definition of those rings, but also can include oxygen or other atoms as part of the larger complex molecules. And like LSD and some of the other drugs we've talked about before, benzodiazepines are completely synthetic and can be made only in a laboratory setting and are never found in nature. But of course, all of the ingredients do have to come from somewhere, so there are some natural roots to them. Benzene is actually a natural part of crude oil, making it into petrochemicals, so it's created through that long, natural process of turning organic matter into oil over millions and millions of years. Scientists can then extract the benzene from the crude oil, combining it with other constituents to make whatever specific benzodiazepine they're working on. And no matter what benzo they create, all of these look like a white powder, which is then typically put into capsules or pressed into tablets and administered orally. This is probably familiar to people who either have a Valium or a Xanax prescription or have used or seen them used off-label for recreational or self-medicating purposes. Some types of benzos, such as Valium, Ativan, or Librium, can also be dispensed intravenously, while another, under the brand name Versed, is actually only done through IV. And this is typically seen in hospital settings when someone has either a serious medical condition or a very serious injury and needs assistance relaxing or sleeping, so they put it on a constant IV drip so they're able to get that uh, done consistently. And that's actually all for the introduction of benzodiazepines, but there's a lot more coming next week where we'll be diving into the science of benzos, how they interact with the body, their medical effects, and some of their potential side effects. And now it's time for our roundtable discussion, where we bring together some of the brightest minds in drug policy reform to talk about the biggest issues facing us today. So for today's episode, we'll be discussing the UN General Assembly Special Session on Global Drug Policy, known as UNGAS, with our very own producer and SSDP Outreach Coordinator, Tyler Williams, and Sarah Merrigan, our Engagement Director and SSDP UNGAS Coordinator Intern. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Yay, it's always fun to be on my own show. <laughs> mm -hmm. Hi friends, thanks for letting us be on this week <laughs> Also it's yeah, weird, sure. I, I know we all uh, collaborated on the intro um, But like it's just weird to, to be described as the brightest minds in drug policy when it's our own podcast I mean, yeah, that's why, that's why we're all doing this together Because we know the most <laughs> So um, for people who haven't heard us talking about UNGAS pretty much nonstop for the past couple months, um, do you, Sarah, want to give us a quick overview of just what exactly UNGAS was? Sure. Um, so UNGAS, that ridiculous abbreviation, stands for the United Nations General Assembly Special Session. And this particular UNGAS was on the world drug problem. So the last one was in 1998, and basically each UNGAS is about a specific topic. Um, like I said, this one is, was about the world drug problem, and it was uh, scheduled for 2019, but in 2012, I believe, um, Mexico and a couple other countries called on the UN to move up because they felt like it was a really pressing issue, and they wanted the discussion to happen sooner rather than later. So yeah, so this is uh, basically a once per two decade meeting of all of the member states of the United Nations, and they're going to get together to discuss what the UN's position on global drug policy is. Does that sound right? Yeah, I think that's a good way to sum it up. 
Okay, uh, cool. Um, not... Oh, go ahead. I say there's, um, you know, it's a it's a discussion that happens, but that doesn't always uh, lead to that much fundamental change. And that's kind of what we saw this time around is that there was a lot of a lot of talking, a lot of rhetoric, and not necessarily all that much action to match. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so for our, a lot of our more longtime listeners, I I know that they've noticed us talking about this uh, pretty much constantly for the past few months because it was a, a pretty big event both for SSDP and the larger drug policy reform movement worldwide. Uh, so on the SSTP side of things, I mean, all of us four were at the conference. I'm sure tons of our listeners were, too. And tied in with the conference was that afterwards, uh, SSTP actually brought a bunch of the students up to New York City in order to to have an action outside the UN before on gas started. Uh, so unfortunately, I wasn't able to attend myself. So really curious to hear from both of you of just how how that action go and, and what exactly was it for uh, for other listeners who haven't weren't able to attend. Yeah, totally. I'd love to jump in here um, because I'm really proud and excited about what we did. Uh, So, you know, we had the three-day-long SSDP 2016 conference uh, before UNGAS, and we had about 550 people in attendance of the conference. And on the morning after the conference wrapped up, we bust a little over a quarter of them uh, from Washington, D.C. to New York City. On three buses, we had approximately 150 or 160 people uh, bussing up to go uh, protest outside of the UNGAS um, or outside of the UN. Uh, and so that was uh, logistically something, I think, something to be uh, exceptionally proud of for everyone who participated and, like, made it onto a bus and didn't get lost and, uh, <laughs> and you know, like, moved up the entire eastern seaboard. We basically took you know, 25% of our conference and moved it five hours north. And you managed to feed us and give us coffee before we got there, too. Yeah, exactly. Um, So, and then, like, do an entire pro. It wasn't even just, like, going there. It was, like, going and then, like, performing. And how long was it, Sarah? It was, like, a couple hours long of a demonstration, right? Yeah, I think all in all it ends up being right about two hours. Um, We got started a little bit after 3.30 and I think we were able to wrap things up by about 5.30. Um, there was, well, the two big components um, that ended up kind of blending together into one. We started off with soapbox speeches, and so we allowed people to um, kind of come up to us as things were happening. We had a little bit of a speaker's list before we got started, but then as people were giving their speeches and people were really being moved and inspired. Um, we let people come up to us and say, Hey, I'd like to get on the microphone. I would like to speak about all the different ways that the drug war has affected me and impacted my community and people that I care about. And it was incredibly powerful. Um, there's some really great footage by drug reporter that we'll make sure to link to on our website that really kind of captured the, the mood of how things, um, how things got started and how things went throughout the, throughout the demonstration. Um, and after, I want to say about an hour, maybe a little over, um, of soapbox speeches, we had a few people who tried to slam poetry. I'm not sure that it was definitely poetry. Um, and it was, it was so powerful, um, to see people, you know, all of our peers and young people, young people actually getting to, um, amplify their voices both literally and figuratively and in the i mean the biggest problem with a lot of these un and these more formal drug policy discussions is that young people are so often tokenized but then are shut out of the actual conversation and are told um basically to be seen and not heard and this was our way of kind of combating that and saying no we're here and we want to be heard we want to talk about all the different ways that these policies that are supposed to be protecting us are actually harming us. Um, I think so it was a lot of it was about art and using art to amplify our voices. And there was a I actually I, I went up to New York Sunday night, the last day of the conference, so I didn't get to hang around for the poster making session. But there were some awesome posters that our people made at the conference. Um, it was just, it was really phenomenal. It was, you know, months of work preparing for this and to see it all culminate into a couple hours was so rewarding. 
And this is an excellent segue into what actually became kind of a central point of the UNGAS experience for SSDP. You know, speaking of months of preparation culminating into, you know, one event, uh, we know that one of the major um, incidents that happened actually repeatedly throughout the week was students who had been properly registered for sessions being unable to get in. Um, so that's a perfect example of what you were just talking about, Sarah, when you say that, um, you know, the youth and young people are constantly evoked in these speeches about drug policy, but rarely are they, you know, invited to actually speak on these topics, let alone, you know, like even attend some of these sessions. Can you guys talk, talk, talk to us a little bit more about what happened there? Yeah, definitely. Um, so, uh, I think Sarah can talk a little bit more about the process of getting registered. Um, I know, like, as a person who I, I really, up until that day, um, I was not heavily involved in our prepar- uh, in our preparations for the UN. Um, but I, like, remember specifically being emailed instructions by Jake, uh, our international outreach coordinator who was, um, you know, kind of helping to run the show. Um, he emailed me instructions on how to register for my special events pass, which was supposed to get me into the UN for all three days. And I followed all of the instructions, and I got all of these confirmation emails, and I sent in additional information to the UN, and it, like, wasn't enough. Uh, <laughs> we got there in the morning on the first day, and they m- had moved the uh, registration place or the pass pickup spot um, easily, like, five blocks away from where they had originally told us. And this change happened, like, at 6 a.m. that morning. So I woke up, took a taxi, went to the place, and then had to walk another five miles because – or fi- five blocks because they – like last minute switched it and then once we got our passes uh you know we had about 30 people there who were affiliated with ssdp and everyone was having problems getting into the breakout rooms and the conference rooms and it was just really unclear about like what passes worked for where even though we had done all of this prep work to make sure that we had the correct passes to get into these rooms um, and it would also change based on the different security guards. Some of them were more lax than others and would just be like, okay, whatever, go in. And others would be like, nope, like your pass does not specify the specific room you're going to, so I can't let you in here. Um, and it was just like everyone had a different story. We were all in this massive group message on Facebook, and some people were saying, oh, I got in. And others were like, I'm locked out. I'm in the lounge. Like, I can't get in. So... Um, it was even people with the same passes going to the same sessions. Oh yeah, we're we, getting different yeah. responses. Oh wow. Yeah, my favorite story was um, one of uh, a, one of our people from Canadian Students for Sensible Drug Policy was actually sitting in a session. He had gotten in, he had his pass, he left to go get coffee, came back with the same pass that he had used to go in, and was told that his pass was not enough to get him into this room. What? All of his belongings were in there. He had literally just come from this room, and they told him no. Um, oh, my God. Yeah, I think that really speaks to how much... Um, I mean, they were changing things at the last minute, but it also seemed that they were kind of changing things as they went along. And if they mm-hmm. didn't feel like letting you into the room, they would tell you one thing, and they would tell you something different. Um, there was another incident with a CSSDP year who was actually... I want. I believe he was the youngest person from all of our delegations. He was a high schooler, um, yeah. And he was at one point the only person, the only youth. Um, I think he was in the general, the plenary, um, so the main kind of general assembly area. And people were security guards were going around and making sure that everything was okay. And he was the only person who was, um, for lack of a better word, who was targeted by the security guard and asked mm. to see his pass. And they, so it seemed. Um, from what we heard from a lot of our allies and other people on the ground, they were really um, civil society and specifically reform-minded members of civil society were being um, disproportionately targeted and profiled by these security guards. And and this is just such a terrible situation. I mean, I even remember you, Tyler, posting at one point that you were in a room and didn't even want to leave for lunch out of fear that you might not be let back in, which is just terrible and and I, I keep wondering whether this was more of a bureaucratic screw up that they just had no idea what they're doing or if it was malicious censoring i'm wondering what kind of feeling you you folks got from that 
my feeling with a lot of things like this is that it's somewhere in the between. I don't think that anyone ever had a high-level meeting and said explicitly, like, okay, let's make sure that none of the young people or the reformers, like, get into these sessions. But I think that there was no attempt made by anyone who had any, you know, power in this situation to rectify the problems. So I think it was like, you know, a malicious ineptitude. Like it was clear <laughs> it was it was clear that they that they were not trying to fix the problems and they would not try to fix the problems because they didn't care about civil society. They specifically didn't care about young civil society and they really 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 didn't care about young civil society drug policy reform groups. I just wanted to clarify real quick before we continued our discussion because I think civil society is an interesting term of art that you both Tyler and Sarah have used. Can you guys just explain is that like NGOs or what does civil society encompass? That's like a term that like UN the UN uses but isn't commonly, I guess um, used in daily conversation. So is that like, is that like nonprofits? Is that NGOs? Um, is sorry, that... that was, I guess, uh, I sort of fall into the lingo that we've been No, using. absolutely. I just want to make sure we all know what we're talking about. Um, yeah, so civil society refers to um, exactly what you just said, primarily um, actors that are not affiliated directly with member states. Um, so like SSDP um, and all of the CSSDP and related groups like that um and it it encompasses both reformer groups like us and then more of the um groups that want to maintain the status quo i guess like we have project sam and some of the more treatment-minded um the whole the whole broad spectrum of groups who are working um in a non-state capacity to on drug policy reform at some level would be considered civil society Awesome. Thank you for that clarification. Mm-hmm. And yeah, what I was going to say before that was just that this also does just seem so much, pretty much like a microcosm of the drug war in general in terms of the disproportionate targeting in the sense that, you know, okay, marijuana is illegal for everyone, but we're only really going to, to like pull over someone who's black and search them uh, when there's just as much of an equal chance of a white person having marijuana in their car. And in this kind of case, it was, okay, security guards are going to pop their head in this meeting room, talk to the people who seem, you know, out of place maybe, who are just all of the young people, and check their credentials while not checking the credentials of the 60-year-old white guy in a suit, and even though their, their pass is also probably uh, incorrect. And so that just is just so unfortunate that that did end up happening. But I'm glad that at least some people were able to make it in. Um, and, and moving forward to talk a bit more outside of the uh, those controversies in terms of more of the, the background of just getting into kind of the meat of ungas and what actually was debated there. So I know that it began with because um, there had previously been the, the CND meeting, the uh, Commission on Narcotic Drugs. And so that was kind of the starting point here. Uh, could you talk about uh, Tyler and Sarah, just how how those two related to each other and, and how the actual debate went in at on gas? I guess the first thing I want to say is that there wasn't really all that much debate at on gas. Um, so basically the outcome document, um, instead of being debated for the three days of on gas, it ended up being adopted during the opening ceremony. And that was quite possibly the most disappointing part of on gas for a lot of folks because that, um, you know, they're not even trying to put up a facade of this debate. They're just, mm-hmm. it's, it was adopted within the first hour. And a lot of countries spent the next three days talking about what was wrong with it and what they would have <laughs> liked to see included. And yeah. that just seems so incredibly backwards. You know, if you have all of these problems with the document, why was there not more, I mean, what what is consensus if you're adopting if we're adopting this quote unquote consensus document and then proceeding to talk about all of the ways that we're not okay with it and we don't agree with it mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's not even um, and it's from both sides too you know so sitting in the general assembly room for those 3 days you get quotes from the from the countries that are more about drug policy reform saying you know this doesn't do enough to end the drug war and then you have you know quotes from countries who are really into prohibition who are like this doesn't strongly enough affirm our rights to like you know murder people for drug possession um, because that's that's you know one, that's basically like a literal paraphrase um, you know from Singapore and they were like 
you know, like there's not a there's not a global consensus on whether or not the death penalty is okay for drug possession. And they're basically saying that like this document didn't strongly enough affirm the fact that like it's not That's completely right. terrible for them to murder people for having drugs. I really uh, just love the linguistics that they tried to use because there was so much talk about um, sovereignty and a, like state sovereignty, right? And there was just mm-hmm. this really nice way of saying, well, we should be allowed to kill people for drug offenses. Well, it kind of seems, okay, so on the one hand, um, I totally agree and coming into this conversation thought it was it was silly that the consensus document was adopted at the very beginning of these discussions because it makes the rest of the discussions pre- seem pretty si- meaningless um, if they're not going to have any substance in what the final recommendations of the UN are. I also thought it was pretty disingenuous of, to hold a general assembly at which all members are represented if you're basically going to adopt the recommendations of the Commission on Narcotic Drugs, which is a much smaller representation of countries, right? So then not all voices are um, were heard before the consensus document was created or during those negotiations. But I do think it's interesting that Tyler, uh, what you just pointed out about people from both sides of the debate being unhappy with the final document. Cause that kind of makes me think like, Oh, maybe this is, there's more consensus behind this document than, than it originally seemed. If people from both sides are unhappy, then it, maybe we did strike the middle balance that we would have even after like three days of debate. I don't know. I think that's an interesting point. I, but I want to go back and touch on something um, you mentioned about how the CND is much less representative because yeah. that, um, so specifically, the countries that are not represented at CND tend to be the ones without permanent missions um, in Vienna. And largely, those are countries in Africa and countries um, in like the Caribbean and certain parts of Latin America. And when you think about it, I mean, those are countries from the global south. And that's such an important perspective when we're talking mm-hmm. about dr- the drug war policies and like so yeah. yeah basically all the producer and transit countries yes and so to not pay much attention to the perspectives of those countries and come up with this document and then adopt this document and then once we finally get to a place where everyone is present um you know then saying well okay you can talk now and you can make your voices heard it just is you know um secretary general ban ki-moon had called for an open and inclusive debate and like the consensus thing, I'm just not sure how you can call it an open and inclusive debate when it fundamentally is not. Yeah, and I know there were also, as we've talked about on some previous podcasts, of just that the uh, for for some countries were going into this with pretty much the idea that they knew they wouldn't be listened to, and uh, we're still taking a couple different routes. I mean, I remember some uh, official in Australia saying that they shouldn't even go, that it was a waste of money. Um, I, I'm curious to see, to hear if they did end up showing up or not. Um, but also of just those countries like Canada and Jamaica, for example, that are pretty much, Canada especially, since they're uh, legalizing adult use of marijuana, pretty much no matter what the UN does, what what was the the stance of those countries at, at the at on gas and were they pretty much just getting up there and saying hey this doesn't matter or were they trying to pull it in a in a certain direction so they so to your first question um, and correct me if I'm wrong Sarah but I'm pretty sure the Australian delegation did show up um, as did the president of Mexico who had also promised that he would not show oh, up. interesting. yeah um, uh, and he actually uh, made a real made some I guess not really strong statements, but made some pretty strong statements about the need for decriminalizing um, marijuana possession and talking about um, you know moving forward with some form of decriminalization in Mexico and like medical marijuana stuff. So um, I thought that was pretty cool, and that was definitely a highlight of sort of the opening day was um, seeing the president of Mexico come anyways and be like, "You guys are so stupid. We should do this." Um, and like Mexico is going to do it anyways, which I think fits in with your your other question here about what about these countries that are going to move forward anyways, and and what does that what does that say about this process? Um, Sarah, what's like what's your read on that? I think it's mm, it's tough to come with a really like comprehensive read, but I um, heard I had a lot of really interesting conversations with our colleagues from Canada, and there's specifically interesting conversation about the way that Canada is going to kind of frame this within the conventions. Um, 
I'm not sure if our listeners are familiar, but in ooh, a few years ago, I'm not going to, I'm, I don't remember the exact year, um, but Bolivia challenged the conventions um, on the basis of coca leaves because mm-hmm. it has, um, it's an ancient tradition in their culture and the, basically there's not room in the conventions for like cultural uses and which is similar to the argument that Jamaica is making now um, with cannabis. But Bolivia actually ended up pulling out of the conventions and opting back in only on the basis that they would be allowed to sort of do their own thing with with regards to the coca leaf. Um, And there seems to be, from people I talk to in Canada, um, there's kind of an agreement that that is not really the approach that Canada is going to take. Um, They're not... No one sees them like pulling out of the conventions altogether and then coming opting back in. Um, they're more. I'm. Oh, the person I was talking to used a really great phrase, and now I'm totally blanking on how she worded it exactly. Um, but essentially, Canada is saying that they realize that they're breaking with the conventions, um, but they're going to continue doing so, and I think. I'm not really sure what it means for the broader implications or for what it means for 2019. Um, I think it's definitely setting an example for other countries. Um, Countries who might not feel that they have as much influence over the UN are now saying, well, if Canada is doing this and it's okay, nobody's really stopping them, it might, you know, pave the way for other countries to go ahead and do so as well. Um, But it's definitely... It's going to be an interesting three years leading up to the next meeting. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of that next meeting, um, we we just described UNGAS as like a once per every twenty year type meeting, um, but now we're talking about another UN gathering or discussion in the next three years already. What is what is up with that? <laughs> is that because they didn't reschedule, or they just like what's happening in twenty nineteen, basically? Um, it's going to be a continuation of this drug policy discussion. Is it another UNGAS or is it some different um, entity or group that's getting together? Do you... I might be completely wrong here, um, but the from what I have heard from people I've talked to, at this point we don't really know if it's okay. going to be another UNGAS or not. Interesting. Um, there will be a yeah. meeting in 2019. It's scheduled and it's very likely going to be in New York again. Um, but at this point, they're, we're not really sure what it's going to be called. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> there's there's a lot of, um, I mean, obviously a lot of organizations are, and member states are already taking steps to prepare for this meeting, but there are still a lot of unknowns. And I guess the biggest thing we can hope is that the logistics and the passes and all of that are... Um, better understood and that things run a little bit smoother next time <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah and so for from my understanding of um that i got from david borden when he spoke at the ssdp conference right before on gas was that basically on gas is um or, or the, this is a special session is scheduled to always be every 20 years and so the last one uh was back in 1999 and then there's already one planned for 2019 and the only reason that we had one just uh just last month was because it was called for very specifically um, kind of breaking as a supplement to those other ones because Mexico and I think a couple of other countries called for this new meeting. And Mm -hmm. Colombia and Guatemala. Um, That's really interesting because my understanding had always been that uh, Mexico, Colombia and Guatemala called for the next UNGAS to be moved up to 2016 rather than like an additional session being Mm -hmm. planned for Mm -hmm. three years earlier. So I completely misunderstood that and didn't realize that the 2019 UNGAS was still happening. Yeah, my understanding and we'll we'll follow up with this if we are uh, ending up being incorrect, but I'm pretty sure that it's that there is going to be the next meeting in just three years. So, I mean, it's both kind of a, a... 
strange thing of just cramming in this much in just the, this three or four year period. Uh, but on the other hand, things are going to be have moved so far in the next three years before 2019. And we'll probably, you know, Canada will have already implemented their adult use marijuana program. We're going to be seeing all sorts of other countries making great strides, hopefully much more in the United States here, at least on medical marijuana at the federal level. And so while I'm not definitely not holding my breath, because as we've talked about uh, just in this discussion, there's a lot of things that can go wrong with with any sort of U.N. meeting or action. Uh, but I, I do think that we'll hopefully be able to have a better chance at some serious progress uh, in 2019. Um, but so as far as um, some other things that just after um, UNGAS concluded, I know that there is now a, a lot of follow up work going on about continuing this conversation and making sure that we are able to both, you know, build up for 2019, but then also just be making a lot of other progress until that time as well. Um, and so I know that SSDP has been launching this grow up or shut up uh, hashtag campaign uh, on social media. Uh, Tyler, I know you've been coordinating a lot of that. Would you would you tell our listeners about what that's all about? Yeah, totally. Um, so this is actually comes out of a personal experience that I had at UnGas. Uh, during one of the uh, breakout sessions on drug treatment, um, a gentleman from the crowd stood up and you know asked a question, which was really more of a comment, and said, you know, basically he said, you know, I worked in uh, New Jersey for for 15 years, or, or worked in New Jersey for six years, and you know, I'm proud to say I, I sent 15,000 people to forced uh, drug rehabilitation, uh, and I think that we need to be doing more of that, is what he said. Uh, I didn't catch his name at first, so after the session was over, I went up and politely asked him who he was and who he was with. Uh, turns out his name was David Evans. Uh, he's a special advisor to the Drug Free America Foundation. And so I got the info and said, oh, great, thanks. Um, you know, and I, and I returned to my seat. And then he came up to me and asked who I was with. And I told him I was here with students for sensible drug policy, and he immediately got very defensive. And, um, you know, it, there was kind of an image there uh, that I like to convey of, like, I was, like, sitting in the corner, like, on my laptop, and he's this, like, he's, like, a six-foot-tall something kind of guy, and, you know, he was kind of, like, towering over me, and he got very defensive about uh, what he said, and he said, you know... You know, he's like, well, before you go writing anything nasty about, you know, my ideas, he's like, you know, he's like, he's like, do you have any, do you have any kids? And I was like, uh, no. He's like, well, maybe you should grow up first before you start to say nasty things about forced drug rehabilitation. And I was like, okay, man, like, uh, yeah. And I just like ended the, <laughs> I ended the interaction as quickly as possible because it was really uncomfortable and just like not going to go anywhere productive. Um, and this was something that, you know, being literally told to grow up before having an opinion is something that happened to many of our students. Um, you know, Sarah Vell Narovic is one of our international students and she was told by two uh, people, um, in another session to like that basically 19 and 20 year olds were uh, too irrational to have good opinions on policy and they shouldn't be, you know, taking part in these proceedings, that sort of thing. So we launched a campaign specifically targeted at David Evans because, um, you know, he so viscerally uh, targeted us for our age. And basically um, people, uh, you know, young people and also our, our allies who are over the age of 30 can participate by, um, you know, taping their mouth shut and, and writing on the tape do not open until and then the year that you will turn 30 or if you're over 30, you know, say something like uh, at Drug Free America, you know, listen to young people. Right. Um, and so uh, and then posting that picture of their mouths taped, taped shut on uh, Twitter uh, aimed at the at Drug Free America Twitter handle with the hashtags, you know, grow up or shut up because Drug Free America told us to grow up or shut up and uh, that we want them to hashtag start making sense. Um, we've gotten an awesome response from it. Um, over 30,000 impressions in 24 hours on the first day we launched it. So uh, it's really taken off. Very excited about it. I feel like this type of campaign feels so personal to probably a lot of SSDP activists too because I think probably the average 19 or 20 year old wouldn't expect to have a seat at the table during an international like debate about a global issue except other than the fact that like so many SSDPers really are invited to the table to opine and give guidance on drug policy issues like we get invited on our campuses at the state level at the local level all over the place because we are experts in these in these issues and we're just the the type of student activists who are, are accustomed to be taken seriously so i feel like it just became it's such a 
shock to us, particularly in those circumstances where we're confronted with like, quote unquote, grownups telling us that we we don't we can't have the knowledge or we can't have the intelligence or we can't have the critical analysis skill to be able to give feedback on these issues that a lot of us have been studying extensively just because of this number, our age. Um, so I think that's a really interesting, it's an unfortunate experience that you guys had to have during U the UN. Um, but I think that the on a larger scale, it's great that we, that SSDP students and activists are so frequently taken seriously um, in these issues, uh, you know, on, on this issue by grownups in other circumstances, that this would really stand out as something uh, shocking to us. Yeah, so I mean, that this, this has been a really illuminating conversation, and I wish that I was able to make it to ungas myself, but thank you so much for talking about your experiences there, and it's it's too bad that this didn't end up to turning into anything more productive or more progressive, but uh, keeping fingers crossed for 2019, and I'm sure we'll be seeing some great stuff till then. And so, I mean, as both of you very clearly know, uh, since being part of the, the This Week in Drugs team, uh, but we always wrap up with our discussions with a call to action uh, because we always want to make sure that we then not only learn things on the podcast, but turn it in, into some actual positive change. So if each of you could have our listeners uh, do something after after finishing up this podcast, what would you like them to do? Um, so for me, my hope would be that people, you know, in the next three and a, two and a half, three years, you know, until 2019, um, get involved and win local campaigns, win county stuff, win campus stuff, win state stuff. Because I think that, you know, when these international actors, you know, these, these member uh, states and, and delegates come together to speak at the UN, if, you know, inside their own countries, you know, dozens of states or localities or provinces or whatever the appropriate place is have, you know, ended prohibition or like fought back prohibition in some way. It makes it harder for them to then come and, you know, and, and espouse prohibitionist ideals uh, because the policies in their country will have already changed. So if by 2019 we could legalize adult use cannabis in like, you know, a dozen or two dozen states, right, then the U.S. delegation can't come and, and, and really draw a hard line about adult use legalization for marijuana um, because they'll be kind of, you know, facing a dilemma there. So I feel like my call to action is go win local campaigns against the drug war. And if I can echo Tyler's sentiment of getting involved, my call to action would be getting involved at, at the international level. There are so many different United Nations initiatives that are specifically tailored to young people. And we can probably link to some of those on our website, but I, there's, you know, young people might not always feel that we have, that we deserve a seat at the table in these debates, but we absolutely do. And there are absolutely spaces for us to get those seats. Um, and so look into different ways where you can get involved, where you can make your voice heard and do it, make your space. Awesome. And so we'll be sure to put those uh, links up on the uh, website. And thank you so much for to both of you for coming on and speaking with us today. And so again, for our listeners, this has been Tyler Williams and Sarah Merrigan, who are not only parts of the This Week in Drugs team, but also were some of the representatives from SSDP to the uh, United Nations last month. So thank you both for coming on. Yes, it's always fun to join you guys and be on uh, this end of the production. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to episode 43 of This Week in Drugs, hosted by myself, Rochelle Young, and Sam Tracy. The show is produced by Tyler Williams, and Sarah Merrigan is our engagement director. We'd like to thank Sarah and Tyler for also joining us for this week's roundtable discussion. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the show, please send us a message on Facebook or Twitter, or email us at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com. You can also check out our website, thisweekindrugs.org, for more information about the show, including links to our guests and news stories, and so much more. If you're listening to this podcast on iTunes and like what you hear, please give us a rating and write us a review, since it really helps others to find us. And if you want to financially support us, please check out our Patreon page, which you can find a link to on our website. We'd also like to give a final special shout out to my mom, Judy Young, for her generous monthly donations through Patreon. And since it's coincidentally Mother's Day today, 
Thank you also for birthing me and raising me into a quasi-reasonable adult. So that's all for episode 43, and please remember to stay sensible. We'll see you next week. Our outro song this week is Emmanuel Goes to Dinosaurland by Graves. Thank you.